This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. We are in a study uh, going through the book of 1 Corinthians. So we're taking kind of the school year, uh, September to May-ish, working through this book. And we're in chapter 4. We're going to pick up the pace a little bit uh, because we've been moving slowly. Um, So today we're going to finish chapter 4. If you have a Bible, open up to uh, verses 8 through 21 in chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, in the seat in front of you, uh, under the seat, in the basket there, is a Bible. You can pull that out and turn to page 555. And if you don't own a Bible, uh, then take that one home with you. That is our gift to you. Or if you have a Bible, you know where it is, whatever. Just take that one and that'll be our gift to you. We'd love love for you to have one beyond the service. So uh, let's talk... uh, uh, about uh, what do you expect? That's the title as we look at First uh, Corinthians four. Uh, I'm going to read verses eight through thirteen, and uh, then I'll cover the other later in the sermon, fourteen through twenty-one. But let's read the first verses. So let's listen here to God's word for us today. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you've become kings, and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Let's pray. God, we confess that we believe this is your word, your scripture is God-breathed, it is authoritative, it is true, and we receive it as such. God, we posture our hearts as those who need to hear from you today, so we ask you to speak to us. We are here at different places. Some of us are seeking. We don't know you personally. Some of us have been Christians for decades. Uh, and many of us are somewhere in between. But we pray wherever we are today, whatever uh, our life experience, that you would speak to each of us today. We pray that you would grant us uh, biblical expectations for the Christian life. We pray that you would show us the Lord Jesus Christ through this scripture and his glory. And we pray that you would give us grace to hear your word but to not only be hearers, but to be doers. Help us to respond. We pray the truth we receive right now, that we wouldn't leave it in this room, but that we would walk out and incorporate it into our lives. So Lord, I ask you to fill me with your spirit, empower me to proclaim your word to the wonderful folks you've gathered here, your people whom you love. So Lord, please meet us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you this question. What are your expectations of following Christ? What are your expectations 
of the Christian life. What, what, what is it that you think is the nature of the Christian life? If you're a follower of Jesus, what should your daily experience be? Now, Paul is writing to a church in Corinth. They're called the, that's why it's the letters called the Corinthians. He's writing to this church in Corinth, and they are a church of people that are really troubled. They are people who have significant problems, significant issues. And as we see, we've seen, we've seen this throughout the book, but we see it really clearly here, that their expectation of the Christian life is very different than Paul's. What they assume should be their daily experience as a follower of Jesus is very different than Paul's. And so Paul is going to adjust them. He's going to reorient their understanding. And the way he's going to reorient their understanding is an apostle, one who is uh, authorized by Christ to start churches, to write scripture, to lead. Uh, He, as an apostle, is going to use his own life and his own experience to help them understand the times in which they live. It is so important for us to understand the times in which we live because that will help us set proper expectations. One thing we learn, I believe from this passage and the dramatic difference from the Corinthian point of view and Paul's point of view is that theology really matters. Theology really matters because if we have an unbiblical theology, we will have an unbiblical expectation about our Christian life. If we have an unbiblical theology, we will have an unbiblical expectation about our Christian life. So what I want to do is paint a little background. We're going to go verse by verse through this passage, but I'm going to do something I don't normally do. Someone pointed out to me uh, in 11 years of the life of this church, you've never used whiteboard on Sunday morning. So this isn't the norm, but I want to move us to a little bit of a classroom mode for a second, if I could, and explain something theologically about the Corinthians viewpoint of the times they live in and how it skewed their understanding. So the Corinthians, their, their problem is that they have a faulty uh, eschatology. So this is a big, a big theology word, uh, eschatology, uh, nope, that's wrong. I spelled it right in the first service. Here we go, es, eschatology. So eschatology, the study of eschat. The, the, the eschatology is the study of last things, the study of last things. It's not only the study of how the world will end, but it's the study of understanding times. What does God do in different times of history? So I'm going to draw a timeline because you cannot have an eschatology chart uh, without a timeline on it. Some of you get nervous going, oh no, what's he going to do? I think I saw this before. Uh, just, just relax. It's going to be great. Okay. So if this is a timeline... Let's say we live right there. We, the Bible tells us that we are to look forward to the return of Christ. So this arrow down represents Christ's return into the timeline. We don't know when that is, but the scripture does tell us this. Second Peter 2.13 tells us that we are to live expecting or anticipating a new heaven's and a new earth. 
not to be confused with New Hampshire and New England, but a new heavens and a new earth. So the Bible teaches that Jesus will return. There will be a judgment. He'll make all things right. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. And we could say that's the coming of the kingdom of God, at least the kingdom of God in its fullness. So when I say kingdom, I mean, where does the king reign? The kingdom is where is the king present? Where is the king ruling and reigning? So in that day for all eternity, and I guess to be accurate, I should probably do this arrow like that. In all eternity, Christ's kingdom will be present with his people. We will see him face to face. So we're to live expecting the coming kingdom. Now, here's the interesting thing. When Jesus comes, the first time, so this is behind us, the first time we see that Mark, in Mark chapter one, Jesus says, he comes and he says, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. It's here. So Jesus is the king. He says, the kingdom is here. Jesus comes and he brings the kingdom. The kingdom of God is at hand. And then what Jesus does is he goes about giving signs that the king is present and his rulership is present. So what does he do? He casts out demons because he rules over Satan and darkness. He heals the sick because he's the creator God and he restores health to people, bringing healing. He does nature miracles because he rules and reigns over Nature. He actually even raises the dead because he has the power of death and life. So Jesus comes and he comes. His whole message is about announcing the kingdom is here, demonstrating the kingdom is here, calling people to then believe. At the end of his life, he dies on the cross. He is resurrected from the dead. And then he is ascended to the right hand of the father and he pours out the Holy spirit so that the kingdom is not only present in him, but the kingdom presence comes to his people. And so we live, if I could draw this like a big kind of oval, we live in this era, don't we? We live in the time between the first coming and the second coming, just as uh, the Corinthians did. So we live in this age of the kingdom. But it's confusing, isn't it? Because Jesus comes and he says, I have brought the king. The kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe. And then the scripture tells us throughout that we are to anticipate the return of Jesus, the coming of the new heavens and the new earth. We read the book of Revelation and we see the kingdom of God comes to earth and that, uh, that he is present with us. So is the kingdom here or is the kingdom future? Is the kingdom now or is the kingdom yet to come? Yes. It's both. The kingdom has already come in Christ. The kingdom has already come in the Holy Spirit coming to us and empowering his church so that the kingdom is expanding as the gospel is preached and people are coming to Christ all over the world. So the kingdom is already here, but the kingdom is not yet here in all its fullness. The presence of God is with us. The Holy Spirit is called the first fruits of what's to come. The the Holy Spirit, the coming of the Spirit is called the down payment of what's coming. You make a down payment, but there's another payment coming. The down payment has come in the Holy Spirit empowering his church and giving us the message to preach the kingdom of God to others. But we're not in heaven yet. It's going to be far greater than this 
one day. There's coming a day when there will be no sin, no sickness, no sorrow, no oppression, no suffering of any kind. So has the kingdom come? Yes, it has already come, but not yet in its fullness. And living in this balance is so key in the Christian life because living in this balance will set you up to have appropriate expectations about life. So when we read the New Testament, we're not studying First Thessalonians, but I'll just throw this in for free. Uh, in the book of First Thessalonians, the church there is waiting for the return of Christ. And they think the return of Christ, they think they're living right here. They think the return of Christ is so soon that nothing really matters. And so people are quitting their jobs. Paul has to say, go back and get your job. Don't live like, for them, everything's the future kingdom. Everything's spiritual. And if you live like that, that everything is future and now doesn't count, what what will happen in your life is, like you won't really invest in your marriage appropriately. You won't really invest in your job appropriately. You won't really care about the culture around you because Jesus is coming any minute and only spiritual stuff really counts. And so we won't care about societal change because we're looking for the day when all things are made new. And so what really matters here? So the critique is if you're giving yourself to make a difference in this world, to bring societal change, that's just like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. You're moving a real little furniture around, but it doesn't matter because it's going down any day now. So if you live like the Thessalonians did, always looking for just putting all your hope in the not yet and not really thinking about the already of today, then you will live an out of balance Christian life. And some people do that. On the other hand, if you live too much in the already and you're not anticipating the not yet, then you will live like the Corinthians. The Corinthians are not looking to the future. They are pinning all their hopes on what the kingdom has already done in coming to them in the present. They are spirit people. The Holy Spirit is here now. He has made all things new. They are a new creation. And so when you live that way, all the kingdom is here right now. There's a couple of manifestations of that. One is to try to to have an expectation that the world is going to improve dramatically. Like we're going to have this perfect paradise before the return of Christ. That would be one manifestation of that. That's not theirs. Their manifestation of that is the spirit has come. We have all the spiritual gifts. We are, uh, we are living in a heavenly, heavenly reality. We have this heavenly mysterious wisdom. We live with spiritual wisdom. We live with fullness in the life here right now already. And so this, if you live all already, like the kingdom is fully here, then what you do is you deny limitations and weaknesses and sins and deficiencies. You're not looking forward and pinning your hopes on the return of Christ because the kingdom's already here. And that's how the Corinthians live. And so what I want to do is walk through this passage and contrast two views, two expectations, Corinthian Christianity and cross-centered Christianity. Paul says, when I was among you, I knew nothing but Christ and him crucified. Paul is a man who lives for a crucified Messiah and lives in the power of a crucified Messiah and whose life mirrors that of, a, of, a, of, of, the, of the Lord Jesus as well. So first of all, Corinthian Christianity. Now with this drawing of already and not yet, isn't interesting. Look at the first word that we looked at, verse eight. Already you have all you 
want. Now, Paul's going to use some sanctified sarcasm here to kind of say, this is what you think about yourself. This isn't licensed for us to use sanctified sarcasm because A, we're not writing the Bible and B, most of us aren't that sanctified. Okay. So our sarcasm tends just to be uh, rude, but his sarcasm here, already you have all you want Corinthians. All you want is a verb, which means to be satiated. It means to, to eat and drink until you're filled. So he says, the Corinthians, here's how you think about yourself. You're satiated. You're satisfied. You're filled up with all you want. He's not talking about food. He's talking about how they view themselves spiritually. They believe in wisdom. They don't like Paul because he doesn't have the wisdom that their wisdom gurus do and that they, they do. So he's saying, look, we have all the wisdom we need. The Corinthians, he's saying, this is how you act. Like you have all that you need. You're living in the era of the spirit. You're not looking to the future because you've already arrived. The Corinthians seem like they're not aware of present need. You have all you want. You're not needy. And so they are, they are not, um, led to the gospel. They don't see, they have all they want. So they're not looking, they're not posturing themselves humbly looking for help from Jesus because they have all that we need. We don't need Paul. We, they don't look to Christ. They're not benefiting for the power of the gospel. As a matter of fact, as we've looked at the last two weeks, they're in a position just to judge other people. If I have all I want, and I've arrived, and I'm in, I'm in the kingdom now, and I'm a person of the spirit, and we are, the age to come has invaded the present, which it has, but the age to come has invaded the present in all power, then you're in a position to judge a whole lot of people. And that's what they do, and that's what the previous seven verses are all about. They're judging people. Secondly, he says, you have already... Okay, you're living with the already, you've already become rich. Now we know when we read later in the book, we're gonna see that some of them were rich and some of them weren't. So I don't think he's talking about, there are poor people in this church and I don't think he's talking about everybody's financially rich. I think what he's saying is you're acting like rich people. Rich people uh, don't rely on God typically like poor people do. When you are needy, you lean on the Lord in a way that when you have all your financial needs met, you're not thinking that way. And he's saying, hey, you guys, like you're fully kingdom people. You're like rich. You have everything that you need. You are already experiencing fullness. Heaven has come to earth, brothers and sisters in Corinth. And they are rich is what he's saying. Third, he says, um, without us, which is Paul, uh, uh, Paul and Apollos. So without the apostles, you have become kings. You're ruling, you're reigning Corinthians. And as a matter of fact, he says, I wish that was the case. Would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. What's he saying? The Bible teaches that in the future kingdom, after the return of Christ, we will rule and reign with Christ. I have no idea what that looks like, but it's a promise from the scripture. So in the future, after return of Christ, new heavens and new earth, God's people will rule and reign with him. And he's saying, Corinthians, this has already happened for you. You're already ruling. You didn't even need us to become a king. You're a king in life. You're not a pauper. You're not needy. You people are reigning. I only wish that was true because that means Jesus would have come and little old apostle Paul could have got in on the reign with you is kind of what he is telling them. They are reigning. So the 
Corinthians don't have a big not yet category. They're all already. They're not looking to the future. They're not living with something much more glorious happening in the future. Matter of fact, later in the book, we're going to find out that some of them think the resurrection's already happened. Their resurrection, kingdom, ruling, reigning, rich, satisfied, bless God kind of Christians. That's who they are. They're hashtag blessed. That's what it says on their web, on their social media. That's who they are in an ultimate sense. And one thing's for sure about the Corinthians, they're not into suffering. See, what suffering does is suffering causes us to get our eyes on the not yet and anticipate and hope in what's to come in Jesus. It causes us to humble ourselves, cry out to God for help, and long for the day he returns. But if you're a king and you're ruling and reigning and you have all that you need, you don't think that way. And so there's no place for suffering in that kind of theology. The kingdom has come and now they're reigning and now they're rich and now they have no lack and now they live prosperously. No suffering. There's not a lot of sermons in Corinth about take up your cross and follow me. That's not the main topic in Corinth. There's not a lot of sermons in Corinth among the Corinthians about endurance and perseverance because you only have to endure and persevere when it's hard, not when you're a king and you're reigning and you're rich and you have no needs. They're not really into suffering. They're not into that kind of theology. They don't have a need for endurance. And this same kind of theology with some differences, but this same idea is all over American Christianity. It goes by a lot of names. One common name, I don't know if it's a fair name or not, but it's a label that kind of connects, is prosperity theology. It's it's this idea that Jesus' death meets all our needs, that not only does he give us forgiveness, but he always gives us healing. He always gives us full meeting of our financial needs. He always rescues us from all suffering. He always desires to deliver us from all troubled relationships. We can experience his favor in all of our circumstances Already, there's not a not yet, already the kingdom is here and you can experience blessing in all of your circumstances. And so the buzzwords in this kind of world is favor, the favor of God circumstantially. Now, now get this, the favor of God is always on us in Christ by grace, but I'm talking about the kind of view that the favor of God is always on my circumstances. That's a buzzword, favor, increase. I don't know anything about suffering. I don't know anything about endurance. All I know is about increase one day after another, one year after another, increase health, blessing, prosperity now. And all you have to do, Jesus provided all that in the cross and resurrection. All you have to do is come to my seminar. No, just kidding. All you have to do to get that is have enough faith because God has provided it and you access it through the power of faith. Faith is a force that unlocks the blessing of God so that you have circumstantial blessing in all of life right now. That's how you access it. 
by faith. And the way you demonstrate your faith is that your speech, your confession is in line with your belief that he has provided all things in Christ for me now in my life. So your speech must line up with your faith. You can have what you say. As a matter of fact, you will have what you say. If you say some of the things I'm about to say about suffering, then you will have suffering. But if you say what Uh, The Corinthians, I believe, would believe that the kingdom is here in fullness, that you can have what you're saying. Now, let me say this. I agree with the premise of prosperity theology. I agree that in the death and resurrection, Jesus died to forgive all our sins, to heal all of our diseases, to remove all of our sickness, to alleviate all of our suffering to make all of our relationships healthy and whole, to be with the right people in the right situation and have favor and blessing in all of life. I believe that premise. The problem is with the timing because that description of life is the kingdom come in fullness. That's called heaven in the new heavens and the new earth. There is a not yet. There is an already, but there is also a not yet And so we long for the age to come because we live in a broken world. We live in a fallen world where there is sin and suffering and where we're called to take up a cross and follow Jesus in humility and dependence. That's cross-centered Christianity. Corinthian Christianity, cross-centered Christianity. Paul has a cross-centered view of Christianity. Paul says, when I was among you, I came, this blew the Corinthians away. I came in fear And in trembling, chapter two, look it up. Chapter two, verse four or five, somewhere in there. I came to you in fear and trembling. And I knew nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul didn't say I'm a king. And if anybody could have said that, it's the apostle Paul. I I have no needs. I'm rich. By God's grace, I have all that I want. He he didn't come saying I've arrived. He didn't come say the kingdom is coming in fullness. fullness. He said I came suffering. Now, Paul has plenty of already. Paul Paul prays and heals people. They took handkerchiefs that had touched Paul and touched people's body with them and they were healed. That's already, that's kingdom power now. Paul uh, preached the gospel and people were powerfully saved. Paul had way more already than the Corinthians could even imagine. Paul had forgotten about already more than they had ever achieved. Paul says the Corinthians thought tongues was the ultimate, we'll get to this in a couple months, thought that speaking in tongues was the ultimate heavenly reality. Matter of fact, when Paul says, if I speak with the tongues of angels, something that the Corinthians probably thought they had angelic tongues, that they were speaking a heavenly language. The kingdom of God has come so much already that we're already speaking like they do in heaven with a new language. Paul said, I speak in tongues more than every one of you. Paul's got already in all caps, underlined, bold letters. Paul has already, and we believe in already. We're not a church that is, believes in the cessation of spiritual gifts, that the gifts are for another day and that God's not doing anything today and let's just wait for heaven. We do not believe that here. We believe that God acts by power, that Jesus has come and the kingdom has already come. We believe that because that's in the scripture. But we also believe we're not in heaven yet. And there's a not yet. And that's what Paul believes. Look at how Paul describes the not yet category of his ministry. Verse nine, I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. 
scholars say that what Paul is doing here is he's describing a scenario that's unfamiliar to us, but very familiar to the Corinthians. When he says that we are exhibited, the apostles, we are exhibited at the last sentenced to death. It's a picture of what happened when there was a Roman conquest. That a Roman army would go in, they would defeat a people, a nation, whatever, they would defeat them. And then they, when they came back to their land, they would have a parade. And the king or the, or the military leader would lead the parade. And then all of his soldiers would be behind him. And then behind all of the soldiers would be the captives. And at the end of the line would be those sentenced to death. And so when they came into town, those sentenced to death would then go into the arena where they would be fed to wild beasts. Or in their weakened state, they would fight a gladiator for entertainment of the crowd and they would meet their death at the hands of a gladiator. Paul says, Corinthians, you act like you're the king up front leading the charge. Here's what I say. We apostles who bring the very word of God, Paul had been to heaven and had a vision of heaven. He said, but you know what? In this life, I'm at the end of the line and I'm condemned to walk into the arena and be eaten. That's how I view myself. Very different, Paul's view. We're last of all. We're not self-promoting. The world doesn't like us. And when we follow Jesus, at some point, we will all experience resistance, rejection, and sometimes persecution for our faith. And in some places in the world, even death. Paul continues to talk about where at verse 10, we are fools for Christ, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. It is amazing how the apostle Paul, who had been to heaven, who is writing the Bible, identifies with weakness. So what he says, I came to you in weakness, chapter two, second Corinthians, he has to write them again in chapter 12. He says, look, a, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. He had gone to heaven and then the, the, uh, the, the devil gave him a thorn in the flesh, which was some kind of suffering. We don't know what it was, but he said, the reason I had this suffering, I prayed for God to take it away. God did not take it away. Not yet. There's a not yet in Paul's life that he deals with daily. God didn't take it away. Whatever the suffering was, not yet. Why? So that in my weakness, I would know his strength. And when we are weak, then we are strong, Paul says. Paul says, you're talking about all your king and your ruling and reigning. Look, here's what I know. When I'm weak, I experience the power of Christ. That's what Paul says. He goes on for his description of his life as an apostle. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. You're satiated and have all you want. We're hungry. We are poorly dressed. Paul not have enough faith. Paul didn't get the greatest clothes, look the sharpest. Look the picture of wealth, the picture of prestige, the picture of style and health. No, we were poorly dressed. We're buffeted means we're beaten. We're homeless. It's not like Paul never had a home. Paul was itinerant. So probably what he means by that is I went from town to town preaching the gospel and just found a place to stay. So Paul didn't have roots. Paul didn't have, Paul was a homeless guy. So there in, in Corinth saying, Hey, we're, we're, we're living the good life. And Paul's saying, you know what? I, I just trust in God for my next place to live when I go to the next city and preach the gospel. We labor, verse 12, working with our own hands. This is key because the Corinthians are Greek. And in in their understanding, a Greek teacher, in particular, a philosopher, would never do manual labor. 
It'd be like us saying, like, maybe somebody who's a college professor, a brilliant lecturer, researcher. Maybe if you saw that person who was a brilliant academic and you just saw them out doing manual labor, you say, whoa, that. So we even have that in our culture a little bit, but it was strong in their culture kind of classes, the, the instructor, the teacher, the philosopher, he doesn't do manual labor. Paul says, you know what? You guys look down on it, but we worked with our hands. Paul made tents. And so he would come in and he would sew and make tents during the day and preach and love and serve the Corinthians at night. So Paul says there's, there's really a, a lot of not yet in his life, but here's the kingdom power in Paul's life. Think about this. What's the already in Paul's life? Now, he did the, he, God used him to do miracles, as I talked about earlier. But what Paul highlights is never that. What Paul highlights is the power of God in his life, the Holy Spirit come upon him, the kingdom of heaven come to earth and invading his soul, the, the Lord Jesus animating his life. What does that look like? It looks like this, verse 12, when reviled, we bless. That's kingdom power. Paul is saying people hate us. Paul is beaten with rods. He's whipped. At one point, he is stoned and left for dead. You want to talk about some already? He stands up from the stoning and walks into the town of the people that tried to kill him. That's already. But Paul says, what I really want you to know about is that when people hate me and revile me, I bless them. I speak words of blessing to them. That's power. There's plenty of rich people. There's plenty of satisfied people. There's plenty of people that think they're ruling and reigning that don't know the Lord at all. But this is power. He says, when persecuted, we endure. Hey, listen, if you've already arrived, you don't even want to think about persecution. He says, we're persecuted. And you know what? We keep on. That's kingdom power. You take uh, rods and you beat Paul unconscious. He's going to get up and preach the gospel to you. He's going to get up and serve. You punch Paul, you mock Paul, you slander Paul. He's going to serve you. He's going to love you. Because the power of Christ, the already has invaded his now. And he's got a whole lot of not yet going on. He's getting beaten, doesn't feel like heaven. Getting persecuted, doesn't feel like heaven. Getting reviled, doesn't feel like heaven. That's the kingdom yet to come where that's all gone away. And there's no more suffering. But what Paul does know is his already is in the midst of not yet suffering. He knows the power of God. When slandered, all the Corinthians have slandered him. When slandered, we entreat. We don't write you off. We don't judge you. We don't say forget you. You know what? We just appeal lovingly. Come to Jesus. Trust him. Believe in the gospel. Here's what Paul says. We've become and still are like the scum of the world and the refuse of all things. The word scum is the word that was used to be translated when you had a, a pot or a vessel that you cooked out and you cleaned it out and you wiped it out. What, what you wiped out was the scum. Uh, that's me, Paul says, in the world's eyes. Uh, the refuse of all things was what was scraped off the bottom of a shoe. Paul says, when you think of us, here's how the world thinks of us. We're like the dirt, the sand, the manure, whatever you step on, uh, in your sandal, on your sandal bottom. That's us. Scrape it off. That's what people treat us like and think us like. We are not in Paul says, hey, I'm great that you guys think you're ruling and reigning. I'm great that you got it all together, but we're living in a whole lot of not yet here. But man, do we know the already presence of God? Because he says, I've learned to be content in any circumstance, is what he says in the book of Philippians. See, for Paul, the already sometimes miraculously delivers him. 
they're going to kill you. They throw rocks at you. They leave you for dead. Already the power of God comes and raises him up so that he can keep coming. But the persecution doesn't stop. It keeps coming. And so the, the, the already empowers him to keep going. He's not yet in heaven. He, the, the kingdom in its fullness has not come. We do not see Jesus face to face. We suffer in this life. And that's why Paul writes in Philippians 3, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings. You expect the Corinthians, our American theology, oftentimes we'd expect to say, I want to know the power of his resurrection and the problem-free life, the power of his resurrection and 24 seven health and blessings and all of my needs met right now in every circumstance. I want to know the power of his resurrection. Why? That I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And that's not the message in Corinth. Now we can read Paul's example and go, wow, am I even, I'm a wimpy Christian. Am I even a Christian? We can look at that and go, my life of suffering is very different. Here's what we need to recognize. Not everybody suffers equally. Um, not everybody is rejected and persecuted equally. Okay? If you, there are places in the world today that if you stand for Jesus, you will be persecuted like Paul was. The U.S. is not one of them. And it could be in the future. I don't know. But right now it's not. So we may not experience the same level of suffering. All the Corinthians might not experience the same level of suffering if they believed in Christ. However, here's where this relates to us. When we look at Paul's sort of critique of, Christi- of Corinthian Christianity and revealing his own Christianity, here's what we can learn. None of us should be surprised by difficulty. None of us should be surprised by suffering in this life. We should not think that when we have hardship, it's a shocking reality. We should not think that, that suffering is like this inappropriate intrusion into our lives that gets us off from the pathway of serving the Lord. We're here to serve the Lord. And suffering is like this intrusion that, that ruins that. that it, it, it's a bother. It's a hindrance. No, that is the pathway. <laughs> That's the road. What do we think? That is the pathway. In this world, you will have tribulation, the scripture says. In this world, you will have tribulation. But Jesus has overcome the world, he says, so we can trust him. That is our life. We should expect difficulty and challenge. I'm not saying we should pray for it. I'm not saying that we should be like some strangely just celebrating difficulty. I remember when I first came to the Lord in high school and I was very excited about, well, I was already a Christian, but I kind of had a renewed faith in high school. And I I remember going to this place and I went there regularly and I met this older Christian guy. I was in high school. He's probably 40, but I thought he's really old. And whenever I met him, all he would ever, I'd say, how's it going? I'm excited about Jesus. I'm starting to share gospel, gospel with my friends at school. I'm like having a personal revival. And whenever I met this guy, it's like a wet blanket. How's it going? Trials and tribulations. That's what he always said. Like, oh man, okay. How's it going? Hey, how's your week? Trials and tribulations. That's what he always said to me. It was like he celebrated, like he, not in a Paul humble way, but like that's all. Like there, there's nothing else. I'm not saying that, that, that there's no blessing. I've already tried to build as big a case as I can if Paul has more already than anybody. I believe in the power of the spirit, the joy of the Lord, victory in Christ. I do believe that God does miraculous things in our life and nothing is more miraculous than conversion. But we should not be shocked 
by suffering. Because when we experience difficulty and challenge, what it does is it presses us in our weakness to run to God in a way that we normally wouldn't. To run to him to receive either deliverance from our trial or the power of God to sustain us in the midst of it. See, God wants to meet you in your trial and he meets one of two ways. He'll either remove it or his will is to grant you grace to persevere. If he removed it every time, then why would there be perseverance in the Bible? If he removed every problem, why would we be called to endure in the Bible? So sometimes he sustains us. Sometimes he will miraculously heal a Christian with cancer. Sometimes he will powerfully use medical means to heal a Christian with cancer. And sometimes he will take them to himself and they will die. We don't know. We trust the Lord. We believe in faith. We lean on him. And if he intervenes miraculously, praise God. Uh, that's an already miracle. The kingdom of heaven come to earth, the rule and reign. He has power over cancer and he's just demonstrating it right now. Or he allows us to die. And then in the new heavens and the new earth, there is no cancer. And he will demonstrate his reign in that way. And he will demonstrate his reign today by strengthening us in our suffering. Corinthian Christianity versus cross-centered Christianity. Now, some of you may hear this and go, what you're talking about is like, why are you spending all this time on this? I think it's in the text, but you may say, look, this isn't even, I don't know anybody who believes the stuff you're saying. This is like some fringe, you're talking about some fringe doctrine that's like, I don't know, like in a revival tent meeting or something out in the woods of Kentucky and there's sawdust on the ground and they're handling snakes and they're believing what you're saying. No, this is mainstream Christianity in America, what I'm talking about. You go to South America, you go to Africa And you meet Christians and say, what is your view of America? Prosperity. What is your view of American Christianity? And because of what we import, the books and the programs we import there, that's all they know of us is prosperity theology. Now, without without evaluating these people, let me tell you this, that this is mainstream. When Paula White, who's associated with this kind of genre of teaching praise at the inauguration. This is main when she's a representative, one of two or three representatives of Protestant Christianity, regardless of what you think about her, this is mainstream. When the biggest church in the United States that meets under one roof is Lakewood church with Joel Osteen as their pastor. He's America's pastor. These America's feel good Christian leader. This is mainstream. America is cut out We are cut out for a Christianity that says, we don't embrace suffering. We don't talk about suffering. We don't talk about endurance. We talk about getting all our kingdom benefits in the here and now already with very little not yet. That is American Christianity in the mainstream these days. It's moved from fringe to a central place. So here's the question for us. How do you view the difficulties you face? When you face the burdens, when you face circumstances, when you face health challenges, when you face financial hardships, when you face relational difficulties that make your heart heavy, how do you relate? Are you shocked and surprised by this kind of intrusion into my life or 
Do you realize that the call is to take up your cross and follow him, that the call is to come to Christ and to certainly ask for his, in, his, his help in the midst of it, but to trust him in the midst of it? When you think about the difficulty you're thinking about right now in your life, is your primary thought most of the time escaping from it? Or is your primary thought glorifying God through it, whether he grants you instant escape or whether he grants you endurance? And by the way, we pray for people for instant escape. If God doesn't grant that, we pray, we're praying for endurance. Is that how you think? When you think of the difficulties in your life, deep down, deep down, we crave a problem-free life. I think problems, nuisances, difficulty syndrome shouldn't exist in my life. I don't want them. I won't have them in the kingdom to come. But in this day, they are there to mold me and change me. And if we embrace the theology that I get everything now and that all my needs are met today by faith, if I live in that way, one of two things will happen. One is we won't grow very much. We won't grow very much. Because these are the means of growth when God puts things in our lives that cause us to rely on him, trust in him. If Paul comes in weakness, who in the world am I to say I don't have weakness? When we embrace our weakness and come to Christ, that produces growth, that sanctification in our lives. And secondly, if you live this kind of theology in your life, you will ultimately be disillusioned because it will turn on you. It will not deliver as promised. And so when the person that you love that you've prayed for is in the bed and they're dying and they die, what are you left with? They didn't have enough faith. You didn't have enough faith. They had sin. Of course they did. So do I. So do you. But you're left with nothing. And so it's disillusioning as opposed to a view that God is sovereign, that the kingdom has already come in the death, resurrection and ascension of Christ. And there are spiritual gifts and there is his presence here today to move in ways that are glorious, to turn our hearts and to deliver us. But we're not yet in heaven. So in this age, there is trial and tribulation. And by the power of God, he sustains us and matures us and gives us a comfort and an intimacy with God that we would never have without them and that he works in a beautiful way in a suffering person. So that if we pray and a person is healed, praise God. And if we pray and a person is not, but in their suffering, they are joyfully praising God. That is beautiful because that's the very thing Paul is talking about here. When I suffer, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure. When we're slandered, we entreat. When things come against us in life, we press on by the grace of God. Oh man, I've got like 60 seconds to finish the next seven verses and I'm going to do it. It's going to be world record. Mark it down. Here it goes. Uh, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, verse 14, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Paul says, look, I'm not shaming you. And when I raise some critiques today, I'm not shaming prosperity theology people. There's much about prosperity theology in it. There are parts of it, uh, an expectation and a faith towards God. I want more of that in my life. I'm not shaming people, but I am saying it's out of balance on the time. You've got to have already and not yet. So he's not shaming. He's saying, I'm teaching you as beloved children. Verse 15, for you have countless guides in Christ, but not many fathers. I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I love you as a dad. And that's why I'm concerned, Corinthians, that you're believing a bad theology that's leaning into wrong expectations that's going to lead you off course. 
And I want you to know that I love you and I want you to experience Christ and him crucified. I want you to experience the comfort of the Lord, the presence of Christ. I want you to be sanctified and grow in holiness. I want your life to count. He's correcting them because he loves them. That is why I sent you Timothy. So that my beloved and faithful child to remind you of the ways of Christ that I teach in every church. I sent Timothy so he would remind you how I live. So that you could live like I live. One who has hope in suffering. One who sees breakthrough and deliverance at times in suffering and at other times. God says my grace is sufficient. My strength is made perfect in weakness. He then finally says he's coming. Verse 19 Verse 18, some are arrogant as though I was not coming. Man, you guys are talking a lot of theological stuff. You are critiquing me, basically. But I'm going to come to you soon if the Lord's wills, and I'll find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. What he's saying is the, you've got people who are critiquing me and talking about wisdom, and you've arrived. Look, the gospel is power. And if you have the real gospel, what I want to see, he's saying, I'm going to see about their power. Do they have a changed life? Are they humble? Do they serve? Are they loving? Are they patient? Are they kind? Are they reconciling in their relationships? Because that's what the gospel produces. Are they all talk? Or can you show me life change? And can you show me the people you're discipling with the gospel and their life change? Or can you show me a lot of bickering and arrogance? Because it's not about what you say. It's about the power of the gospel. And I'm going to come find that out. For the kingdom does not talk consistent talk, but power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? This is the classic wait till your father gets home. You ever had that speech when you're a kid? I'm coming. I can come one of two ways. I can come disciplining you. And if you have hard headed, unrepentant heretics, we're going to have to put them out of the church. But if you're reasonable, we'll talk about this. Well, I'll help you. I'll love you like a father. I'll be patient with you. A spirit of gentleness. It's a correction that's loving and caring and wants their best. We can work this thing out. And guess what? They do. Because in 2 Corinthians, we find out that they make changes. Because he appeals in love. He appeals in love humbly. So, as we close, where are you facing challenges today? What is your expectation of the Christian life? Are you leaning on the power of God today to deliver you or to sustain you without the deliverance of the situation? Are you leaning on the power of God while at the same time anticipating his return? Anticipating the day when it will all be right. That's the balance. God is appeal, his appeal to us is, is to trust God, to lean on him today, to invite his power to change our circumstances, but yet to look to heaven at the same time, but not yet and say, come Lord Jesus. And that's our prayer. God deliver us, God sustain us. And most of all, come Lord Jesus, come and make all things right for all of us in Christ. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.